Welcome back to an episode of Chartology. I am your host, Ken Shipchase, and long time no listen, talk, I don't know what to say. Well, there's been delightful reasons for my absence from the RSS feed. Uh, my wife had a baby, which is just tremendous. The Lord has been so kind to us, so gracious with us as we have been going through this process of just adapting to new life with our fifth child now at home. We rejoice in that. The Lord, again, has just been so very kind to us. Uh, Talia Karis has uh, welcomed, been welcomed into the world. Talia means dew from the Lord or rain from the Lord. And of course, in Scripture, rain is most usually associated with blessing from the Lord. Karis is the Greek word for grace. We have favor from the Lord. We are blessed. We are favored. And we praise God for it. We, we count it such a, uh, such a blessing. Children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. Uh, they should be valued. And so we rejoice in that. That is not what I am here to talk about today. I am wanting to just kind of get back into the groove of podcasting. I've just been so out of the loop for so long. My semester has ended. Uh, we have Talia now at home. And so just trying to reestablish some, some patterns and things in life. And so this represents my thrusting myself back into the podcast sphere and doing so talking about the sinfulness of mankind uh yeah Are, is mankind sinful you know there's there's such a we live in such a unique time where i think most people would be very willing to admit and embrace the reality that yeah nobody's perfect like like we say that nobody's perfect but most of the time when people say that it's it's spoken almost as an excuse for poor behavior said so, yeah i know this isn't this isn't really the best thing in my life this really isn't how it should be but nobody's perfect right? well, you can't expect me to 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 attain to a certain level of whatever and it's it's used as a dismissal of some really important things, and it really ought not to be that way. We we really ought to come to uh, grapple with this reality of our own sinfulness. And there's different people that oppose the concept of our sinfulness from from different perspectives. Uh, there are those who are Pelagians uh, who would argue that Adam's sin was in no way passed down to mankind. So each human soul it begins created perfectly innocent and free from sin without even a proclivity, perhaps, for sin. Uh, mankind in that system, that framework, is basically good. And it's interesting, you know, Pelagius, as he was formulating this doctrine, he was really responding to some really bad applications of what I would say is biblical truth. Uh, there's the biblical doctrine of total depravity that people were using to excuse sin. They were saying things like, oh, you know, I, I yeah, this... I'm sinning in this way, but it's just in my nature to do so. I can't help it. So Pelagius was trying to to counter that by saying, no, actually, uh, we're we're basically good. It is not in our nature to sin. We choose sin, and therefore that you know we have sin within us that way. But it's not inherent to our very nature to who we are. And so he uh, responded in that way. Uh, the reality is, you know, that that has a poor application or a poor poor reaction to a bad application of a biblical doctrine. Sometimes this happens, right? There's there there's a biblical doctrine, there's truth, and yet people take it to extremes and make bad applications off of that biblical truth. This happens in a variety of spheres, spheres, and and we need to be on guard against that. We need to, to be careful about that. 
we need to recognize, hey, what Pelagius should have recognized is that, you know, there's other ways to answer this objection. Oh, it's just in my nature to, to do sin, so therefore I can't help it. Well, no, if you're in Christ, you have a new nature, right? If, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. He empowers you to live as he instructs. So, yeah, it absolutely does not remove your culpability, but rather explains your culpability. You have been given the Spirit who works within you, and yet you are still living in rebellion. And that explain, that, that, that really brings about the... Uh, the, the the weightiness of that sin really is when when you paint it in that backdrop, it's just so so much more significant. There are others uh, that more can maybe approach this from a postmodern uh, approach. They, the postmodern subjectivist or the moral relativists. They, these individuals wouldn't accept the Bible's authority in the first place, so they would say, "Ah, you know, that's your truth. That's that may be right for you, but this is right for me." And so they just reject the idea of sin as a concept at all because they don't accept the Bible. They don't accept its authority in the first place. And so uh, they may argue for a relativistic, moralistic system. And in that realm, in that world, there is no right and wrong. There is no sin. There's no objective morality. And we see this all over the place right now in our world, right? We, everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, to borrow the phrase from the book of Judges. So the question has to be asked, okay, there's these different claims about who we are, about our nature, about whether or not we are basically good or evil and, and how we think about those things. Well, what does the Bible actually say? And is this doctrine so important that if you deny this doctrine, you are outside the bounds of biblical Christianity? Well, there's a number of texts that I would uh, like to take us to. Of course, as we consider the relevant biblical text, we really have to go back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis, where we see the account of how God created the world. Genesis 1.31 said, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God created all these things, and they were good. Mankind at that moment was still good. We have the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's a very familiar passage to many of us where the, the serpent tempts Eve, and, and she partakes of the fruit, and then verse uh, verse. Uh, seven, no, verse six, and then she gave some to her husband with her, and he also ate. And then the interaction with God as he confronts them with their sin, and they were ashamed, there's guilt, there's fear, there's shame in the midst of that, and that is introduced. And so we have that in the Genesis account of the fall of Adam and Eve, and it's very interesting. You know, there I, I recently saw a video of an ind individual who was claiming that uh, Eve was in the right to eat the fruit. Uh, she was casting off these these shackles from her, and and she need, and she it was right and good and, and noble of her to do this. She she was claiming bodily autonomy in the midst of that in her rebellion against the commands of the Lord, and that is not <laughs> the point of this passage. That is not what is being communicated. To her Eve is not held up as a virtuous woman. In fact, everywhere else throughout Scripture, uh, this act right here is condemned and is spoken of in a negative light. And so I'm going to take us to Romans chapter 5, because this is so crucial. You know, there, so often the Genesis account is, is criticized and said, oh, well, the, you know, it's allegorical, or it's poetic, it's not literal, and we don't have the actual account of, of how God uh, created things. It's just poetic to try to communicate some, some spiritual truth or something. But that's not the way the New Testament treats the account 
of Genesis. Paul speaks of it as historical fact. Jesus references them as historical individuals, references the concept of marriage as, as historical fact when he quotes uh, Genesis chapter 2. And so we don't have the option of saying that it's just mere poetic and is not literal history. It, it, it has to be, or else Paul's theological unpacking of it in Romans chapter 5 completely falls apart. And so uh, I'm going to pick things up in verse 12, where it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Then he's going to go on to say later on uh, that uh, for by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. This is why we have death in the world. This is why we have death because of sin. Death has spread through all mankind. Sin has come into all mankind because of this one man. So then, verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. This is where we're at. We all stand in condemnation because of sin. It's, it's just part of, of who we are. We are in willful rejection and rebellion of our Creator. Many other texts speak to this reality. I think of there are several passages in the Psalms that we could turn to. You know, behold, uh, I was brought forth in sin, in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, passages like that that say, hey, from, from youth we go astray. Right? This is not something we didn't have to teach our children how to tell a lie. We didn't have to teach them how to be selfish. They are just naturally that way. They, they, they choose that in their, in their natural instincts. And so we have... Uh, the strong statements from Paul now going to Ephesians chapter 2, where he speaks about our condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Of course, Paul in this context is talking to believers about how they were prior to coming to faith in Christ, and this is their condition. They walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." Just a wonderful depiction, just a wonderful uh, contrast between how we our, our, our state before Christ and then coming to faith in Christ. But this highlights for us, for our purposes today of, of talking about the sinfulness of man, the reality of our depravity. It's there. We are corrupt. It has invaded every aspect of our being. Children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. It's a harrowing picture. Paul, again, it's... Paul is going to talk about this at numerous points. Perhaps the most famous section is in Romans chapter 3, where he strings together. This is the, the lengthiest single quotation from the Old Testament, but it's not of one particular text. It's of a whole host of texts just, just strung together. 
As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so as a result... Paul says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in chapter 6, he's going to say that the payment, the penalty for that sin is death. This is is a heavy thing. Those are very strong words from Paul, quoting from a whole host of different passages in the Old Testament, some from the Psalms, some from Isaiah. The contexts are certainly different uh, that Paul is drawing from, each of the home contexts of the different Psalms and Isaiah. But he's bringing it all together to illustrate this point about the the depravity of mankind that we are sinful. Though we are not all as wicked as we possibly could be, there is, by by God's grace, there is common grace. There is restraint that occurs. We are as bad off as we can be because of sin. Now, some might say, well, you know, that's just our natural state. Uh, That doesn't apply to believers. Some would teach Uh, this perfectionism that we can attain to as believers. And uh, John is going to write, now that is not the case. In John chapter 1, verse 8, we have John saying, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is really where it really begins to come and hit home as far as, is this really a primary issue? Ah, so what if, if some might say, you know, that maybe morality is relative. Eh, so what if some might might look at, you know, maybe the Pelagian viewpoint and say, well, we're not naturally sinful. You know, what's the big deal about all of this? And John says, hey, if we say we don't have sin, if we say that sin is not a part of our lives, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. We're not genuine believers. If that's our claim, if that's what we are, are saying is true about us, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So that's really where, where the rubber really begins to meet the road in terms of, of why is this in the primary column? Well, John places just this, this significant weight upon the doctrine of sinfulness, and we see the, the consistency of how Scripture paints the human race in their fallen, sinful state. Now, by God's grace, he redeems fallen sinners. But we have to embrace the reality that we are indeed fallen sinners. This is why we need the gospel, right? This is why this is so important. The gospel is literally at stake. Jesus Christ did not need to come and die if we are not sinful. And so if we're talking about the death of Christ upon the cross and and everything that that means for us, it has so much more significance when we first see it in the light of our own sinfulness, how we have transgressed the law of God. We have rebelled against him. There's nothing good that we can bring before God, before the table. Uh, Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. They are not worth bringing up. It's, It's... it's gross, it's disgusting, it's, it's revolting. And yet, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is such good news because we are so wicked in our rebellion against our Creator. So praise God for 
for Jesus Christ. And, and praise God that, that when we see our own sinfulness, when we recognize that and come to, to really come to grips with that, it should weigh on us, and it should bring us to a place of worship and delight in our great Savior. So the gospel is at stake. If, if we deny this, this doctrine of our sinfulness, we really lose the whole reason for why the gospel exists in the first place. But it's the Bible that's at stake as well. Look at all the—I I referenced just a handful of passages that talk about our sinfulness. I did not get into all the, the depth of all that is there in those passages. And yet, those who would try to deny this, are, they would have to deny the Bible. They'd have to deny all these passages, deny that we are sinful, it's to deny what the Bible so very clearly and plainly says. And this is why in the history of the church, it has been so unanimously agreed to that, yeah, we are sinful. And that's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why we need our great God and Savior. That's why we look to him for our salvation. So the Bible's at stake, the gospel is at stake. That is why this is a primary issue. This rightfully belongs in the primary column. I hope that's helpful. I just I just reflect upon that. You know, recently I was having a conversation with an individual who uh, she, she had questions about what what does the Lord's table mean and, and if it's appropriate for her to partake in the Lord's table. And so I was talking with her about the gospel and, and challenging her. Hey, you know, do you understand what it means to be a sinful human being in the sight of God? Do you understand what the consequences of that are? And and she was just so flippant in how she responded to those questions. She just kind of shrugged her shoulders. Yeah, you know, that's just kind of how it is. That's, yep, nobody's, nobody's perfect. We're all that way. And was not letting the weight of her sinfulness rest upon her. She was deflecting. She was, she was just kind of shrugging it off. She was acknowledging the reality, but, but shrugging off the significance of that. And that's something we should not do. We need to come to grips with our own sinfulness. We need to, to be willing to open up our hearts and see, man, my heart is black with sin. And yet, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross, though our sins are as scarlet, we can be made white as snow. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this because this is my just kind of my dipping my toe back into the podcasting water. I'm I'm not going to go into other topics today. I, I had a a book review that I was going to provide for you, just a book, maybe more of a book recommendation rather than a book review. Uh, one of the best books I think available on a biblical anthropology is by Anthony Hokema, created in his image. And of course, it talks more than just the sinfulness of mankind. It it goes into Hokema goes into how we are created. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What, is, what does that actually mean for us? And, and what are the implications of that for us? And does that image carry on after the, after the fall and after sin and all those things? He covers all of that, and he does so in a remarkable detail. He's very biblical, very thorough. I appreciate so much about the way he writes. He is a, a different kind of theologian than I am uh, in, in terms of his conviction. Uh, he, he is uh, covenantal, and I'm more dispensational. And yet I find great value in his work because he is so biblical in how he approaches these particular topics. There's so much about the book that has so much value, and I do encourage you to, to pick it up and read it. Uh, this past summer, I had the opportunity to uh, teach some very basic theology at our church camp that our, uh, our church uh, fellowship participates in and, and, and puts on together. And teaching that theology, I, 
was wrestling with which topics to cover and I decided that, you know what, I really think a biblical anthropology needs to be some of the basics of what's covered because it is one of the most foundational things that we can understand is who we are as human beings and understanding that helps us understand our relationship to God. Understanding who God is and who we are in our relationship to one another is so, so critical. And, and so I, I taught some of the basics of what does it mean to be made as the image of God? What, is it, what does that actually mean for us? And that book just does a tremendous job of breaking down and examining all the relevant biblical texts going through that. So I highly recommend and commend that to you. I have yet to find a better book on biblical anthropology. So I commend that to you. And uh, yes, we want to rightly understand who we are. And that includes our sinfulness. So I do thank you for joining me today on this uh, brief foray into uh, chartology and thinking through why why is the sinfulness of man placed in the column in which it is placed? Well, it's because of all these myriad of texts and the weight that is placed upon this doctrine by the biblical writers. I hope that helps equip you to do theology for the glory of God. And until next time, I pray that we can all be faithful to the word of God for his glory. We'll see you next time.